All right. Well, happy Palm Sunday, everybody. Uh, I mentioned before, right, Palm Sunday is this interesting time where uh, we are sort of coming towards the end of Lent. Lent is about sort of preparing the way of the Lord. Uh, we're preparing our hearts. We're trying to prune the parts of ourselves that get in the way of our relationship with God and each other. We're trying to fill our lives with things that help us connect to God and each other. And so we're sort of preparing the way for, for God to show up in our lives. And this is sort of what happens in Palm Sunday. It's people who are, are preparing the road for Jesus, laying their coats, laying their palms, chanting Hosanna. Here comes the Messiah. I mean, if you're a Jew at this time, this is, this is it. This is when Jesus is going to stride into Rome, into Jerusalem, excuse me, occupied by Rome, stride into Jerusalem and overthrow them. The Messiah is going to establish God's kingdom, right? A state for Israel again to, to lead, to establish the temple. I mean, this is a celebration. And so out they come. Hosanna in the highest. And it is a, it's a wonderful scene to picture Jesus. Sort of, and if, I've never been to the Holy Land, but I've seen these pictures uh, from the Mount of Olives you sort of look over the city. You have to sort of go down into a valley and then up into the city. But it's this, this beautiful picture of Jesus overlooking Jerusalem uh, and making this triumphal entry. The question I often have on Palm Sunday is, how did seven days make such an amazing difference in the wrong way, such a significant difference, in the crowd. I'm always fascinated on this Sunday with the question of how did the crowd go from cheering Jesus, chanting Hosanna, to seven days later, Jesus on the cross, the crowd is scattered, nowhere to be found. Some of them have even joined in screaming, crucify him. How do we get from a crowd chanting Hosanna to a crowd chanting crucify him? That's a pretty big turnaround. What happened? I think in a general sense what happens is Jesus defies all of their expectations. And in the past, I've sort of talked about Jesus not fulfilling the role of the Messiah. Jesus does not overthrow Rome. In fact, Jesus submits to his own death. For many, that would, that would mean, oops, that's not the Messiah. We made a mistake. Everyone go home. Go back to Galilee, right? Jesus is not the real deal. Because for, for Jewish people, they had a particular role for the Messiah in mind. In the past, I've talked about Jesus defying our expectations because one of the first things he does when he gets to Jerusalem is he goes right to the temple and he whips people out. Get rid of the money changers, right? Stop making this a marketplace to make money. This is a place of, uh, of worship, right? This is my father's house. But that makes many of the religious leaders upset, the, the Jewish religious leaders. Jesus seems to find a way to make everybody upset and to defy their expectations. Today's lectionary reading gives us another piece to the puzzle, another part of the answer, not the whole answer, but a part of the answer as to what happened between Palm Sunday and Good Friday. And part of what happens, it seems, is that Jesus 
keeps doing things that make people upset. I'm going to read from Mark 14, and I'm going to read from Luke 7. These are two gospel passages about the same story. Jesus has made his entry. He is now in Jerusalem. He continues to teach daily uh, to the crowds in the temple courts. Um, and he continues to visit people's homes. Mark 14 and Luke 7 highlight one of these visits. In the Gospel of Mark and in the Gospel of Matthew, this very scene is the straw that breaks Judas's back. This is the last straw for Judas where he decides, you know what, that's it. Jesus is not the Messiah. I'm going to betray him. I'm going to sell him out to the religious leaders, right? Because they've been trying to find a way to arrest Jesus and eventually have him killed. Um, so we, have, we should take this story very seriously, right? This account, because this is where Judas draws the line. So Mark 14, 1 through 11. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and to kill him. But not during the festival, because the people might riot. They saw the people chanting Hosanna and laying down the palm fronds and celebrating. They don't want to arrest Jesus now because they could have real problems, right? They're going to wait. While Jesus was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, Luke will tell us this is a Pharisee, uh, probably either was dealing with leprosy or had dealt with it in the past. While he's at Simon the leper's home, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. So expensive, in fact, that it was worth one year's wage for the average worker. The perfume was made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on Jesus' head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why this waste? This perfume could have been sold for more than a year's wage and the money given to the poor. They rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you and you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. This is how we anoint dead bodies, right? Jesus is going, he knows he's going to die. She has faith, she trusts his teaching, she's anointing him. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what this woman has done will also be told. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray, to betray Jesus. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So Judas watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over. So in this account here in Mark 14, the main issue is the wasted money. There's so many poor that have so many needs. And this woman takes perfume that could be sold for a year's wage. In our time, what would that be? $50,000? And instead of getting the $50,000 and helping the poor, she pours it on Jesus' head. But instead of rebuking the woman, Jesus says, no, 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 no. She recognizes what's ultimately important. And she defends the woman. And right, rejects 
the criticisms of his disciples and of the Pharisees that are present. I'm going to read the same story, but now in Luke 7. Here's what I want you to do, because I'm going to ask you some questions after. You're going to get quizzed. You didn't think you were going to get a quiz today, but that's what happens when you have a teacher for a pastor. So I'm going to read the same story out of Luke 7, and I want you to think about the differences here. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet Jesus' feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if Jesus were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, a sinner. Jesus knew what he was thinking and answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. And then Jesus goes on to tell him a parable. All right. Same story, two different accounts. What are some of the differences? You're going to have to raise your hand so I can call on you. What are some of the things that stand out to you between these two stories? Yeah, M. Um, the approach of the woman seems to be very different in both. Um, so one is the idea of like this lavish pouring on top of the head. And then the other is like a really humble, um, like from behind, I am at your feet. And it feels like um, one tells more of a story about like the where probably where her heart and her inner motivation was. And then one tells a story of maybe how it might have looked um, to other people from the outside. Hmm. Yeah, thank you. Definitely the posture is different. One, pouring on the head. The other, on the feet with tears and the, and the hair, like the cleaning of the feet. So there are definitely uh, differences there. What else? I know you have thoughts and you're just like nervous or something. It's okay. I'll just, you'll just get an F on the quiz. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, Bob, Jerry. One of the, um, uh, Simon was called a leper. And then in the other story, the leper wasn't mentioned. Uh, yeah, that's right. So in the first, if you just read Mark, it just says Simon the leper and you don't know that he's a Pharisee. And then in Luke, you know that Simon's a Pharisee, but it doesn't say he's a leper. So like both stories are needed to help fill in some of the gaps there, right? So you, you put them together, you get a little bit more detail about Simon. Yeah, that's right. What else? Why, why are people upset in Luke? Yeah, Doug. The character of the woman was in question. Yeah, in the first story, there's no mention of her being a sinful person. I'm just going to, as a side note, okay, just to talk about how we often think of women in our society and certainly biblical times, 
It is often assumed when people read she uh, is sinful, they assume it's sexual. Isn't that interesting? It doesn't say sexual sin, just says sinful lifestyle. That could be whatever. She could just waste a lot of money. She could just be like slothful or something, right? But we don't assume that. The assumption is, and so some of our preconceptions about women in the Bible and stories about that, fascinating. But Mark does not mention her character at all. Luke, the Pharisee, does mention her character, and that's the issue. So I, I, I'm going to highlight this now. Uh, in Mark, Judas seems upset because... Oh. In Mark, Judas seems upset because it's a waste of money. The perfume's expensive and can be used to help the poor. In Luke, the Pharisee is upset because the woman is sinful. She's unclean. In the ancient world, I just want to, in, an, in the ancient world, for a woman to approach a man to clean his feet with her hair, this is intimate. This is inappropriate. This violates social norms of the day, right? Jesus should have been like, no, 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 no. I don't want you to pour the perfume on my feet. I don't want you washing me with your hair. But by allowing her to do that, and by allowing a woman who is a sinner to do it, makes Jesus unclean. If you touch something unclean, you become unclean. That means you can't go to the temple, right? There's a whole system of clean and unclean, a whole moral law that Jews operate under, and Jesus is just violating them. All of these expectations. He's not like the Messiah upholding all of these norms. He's breaking them. So the main issue in one story is not the main issue in the other story. Now, I don't have a problem with these two accounts at all. In fact, I think it gives it more historical credibility, right? Because you have different people witnessing the same event with different ideas, different perspectives, hearing different people murmur or mumble. If you put them together, I'm guessing she probably did pour uh, perfume over Jesus' head. And then she also poured some on his feet and wept and cleaned them. I think both of those things can be true. And I think some in the crowd were upset about the cost of the perfume. And I think some in the crowd who knew the woman were upset because they thought she was a sinner and shouldn't be approaching Jesus this way. Right? Like all of those things can be true. And these two accounts give us this, this bigger fuller picture of what's happening. So here's uh, the thesis of my sermon. Jesus, no matter who you are, will defy your expectations. Jesus will break every mold you've created for him. Jesus is bigger, more mysterious, uh, fundamentally other than what we think. For, the problem I often have is I make Jesus comfortable for me. If, if Jesus agrees with everything you think, <laughs> if Jesus agrees with everything you do, if Jesus is just amening your life each day, then you've created Jesus in your image. And I can assure you, Jesus is ready to surprise you, to violate the expectations you have, right? So I want you to think about this for a minute. For those dodgy Pharisee conservatives, Jesus breaks the moral norms about this unclean woman touching him, right? This woman who's a sinner, these taboos about men and women and the intimacy she shows him by crying at his feet. Jesus violates that. 
He makes them upset. They're like, that, this is not how the Messiah would act. The Messiah would be pure and clean and know how to draw boundaries with these women. But Jesus doesn't do that. Ah, but for those wonderful liberal disciples who care about the poor and social justice, Jesus thwarts their expectations too and says, yeah, she could sell that for $50,000 and give it to the poor, but I'm not going to be with you forever and the poor will be with you forever. Almost callous in his statement and he thwarts their expectations too. Whatever mold you try to put Jesus in, however we want to draw the boundary about what Jesus would and wouldn't do, WWJD, I can assure you, you better be ready for a surprise. We will spend our whole lives being surprised by Jesus, challenged by Jesus anew. The issue is, are we prepared to be challenged by Jesus anew, afresh? Do I have an attitude of openness, of humility, where Jesus can actually challenge my preconceived notions because I typically don't. I think I've got it pretty well figured out by now. But if the, if the Bible is any precedent, Jesus is going to make me upset and he's going to challenge me in new ways, right? And I've got to be prepared for that. I think some of the issue is I think the goal is to have the right beliefs and if the goal is to have the right beliefs, then Jesus can never surprise me because I've got to have it figured out. That's, that's my ticket to heaven is the right creed. But if we shift the goal to having right relationship, if the goal is to really connect to Jesus and connect to God, then we should expect to be surprised because you want to know what happens in every one of my relationships? People surprise me. And there I'm like, oh, I didn't see that coming from my son. Oh my gosh, I thought I had Kel figured out. I guess not. And it's a constant learning and relearning and growing and, and it's not static. It's dynamic. So if Jesus hasn't offended you for a while, if Jesus hasn't thwarted or violated your expectations for a while, then open up scripture again. Keep that prayer life going. Keep listening to where the Spirit might lead you. Because if we learn one thing about Jesus is that you're going to be challenged and surprised. And I think that's dangerous, and that's exciting, and it's beautiful. We never get to rest on our laurels. We never just get to say, that's enough, we figured it out. It's always going to be, where's, where's the next step, step in my faith journey going to take me? Where's God going to lead me next? And man, that's going to be a surprise. Judas wasn't ready for that. Judas had a very particular idea. He was a zealot. So he had a very particular idea of what the Messiah was supposed to do. And as Jesus continued to violate those expectations, Judas' faith couldn't handle it, wasn't flexible enough, couldn't see the divine through his own set of messianic expectations. And because of that, we know how his story ends. I pray for us, for open minds and open hearts and humility to follow where Jesus leads to allow ourselves to be surprised and offended and upset by the words and actions of Jesus in, the, in a way that's going to ruin our lives for the good. It's going to tear down some of my worldview for the good that God might rebuild it faithfully, lovingly. So this Palm Sunday, let us chant Hosanna. Let us say yes, here comes our Savior, and then be prepared, right, for Jesus not to live up to what we think uh, that's supposed to look like. Let's pray. 
Lord, we are grateful that you surprise us. We don't often act grateful because sometimes it just feels uncomfortable that we don't have the firmest foundation under our feet. But you don't promise us that. You promise us enough light for the next step in our faith journey. You promise us just enough stability so that we can continue to trust and follow after you. And so give us that, that adventurous spirit that's willing to follow where you lead even when you call us to those places we least expect. We need courage. We need an open heart and an open mind. And we need a little bit more faith, Lord, and so we pray that you grant us those things. Amen. If you would please join for our closing song. I see the King of glory.